Our sermon passage this morning is from Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, you are good, you are perfect, you are holy. You are mighty and to be praised, Lord. There are not enough good things that we can say about you. We can never praise you enough. We can never worship you enough for who you are and what you've done, Lord. But we thank you. We thank you for the many blessings that you've given to us. We thank you that even though we are unworthy and we would all rebel against you and we would all spit in the face of our Lord. Lord, you have chosen us and sent your Son to redeem us. Even though we're so unworthy, Lord, you've not left us alone and you've sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to empower us to live lives that are glorifying to you. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we have the liberty and the freedom to come to church and worship openly in this way, Lord. I, I think even now of some of the ministries and missionaries that we support overseas where even now the wife of a pastor that we support is imprisoned because of their faithful service to you, Lord. 
pray for them. We thank you again that you've given us the ability and the freedom to, to worship so openly. Lord, I pray that we would not waste all of these gifts that you've given us, all these rich blessings, Lord. We pray that we wouldn't be like the unfaithful servant who buried his talents and didn't serve his master, Lord. We pray that we would take the great gifts and the great blessings that you poured out on us and that we would use them to serve you and to build your kingdom. Pray today that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word. Anything that I plan to say or do that's not helpful, that you would take that away from me and that you would only allow me to say things that are true and glorifying to your name and edifying to your saints. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So good morning. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Zane Sills and I serve as one of the elders here at Redeemer Church. As Austin mentioned earlier, our pastor is out on a sabbatical, and he'll be back in a couple of weeks. Uh, today, we're going to be in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, as Julie just read for us, and the title of our sermon is going to be Following Jesus. Uh, so if you're visiting with us, our normal method of preaching is to pick a book of the Bible and work through it from beginning to end. Um, so we've been in Matthew for about three or four months now, and I think at this rate, we're going to be in Matthew for a, a good long time to come. Um, but before we bump, uh, jump in today's sermon, I briefly want to highlight what I think the main takeaways are for us to consider today. I think this passage gives us a call, but it also gives us a warning. So we're called to follow Jesus, but at the same time, we're going to be warned that following Jesus is not an easy thing, and it's something that comes with a cost. So let's spend the first point of today's sermon talking about a man worth following, and this part of the passage that we're discussing today is really just a continuation of what uh, Nathan Drake preached for us last week, where the power, the authority, the worthiness of Jesus is demonstrated through a series of miracles that he performs. So last week, Nathan preached on a series of healings, and today in this passage, Jesus performs a number of different kinds of miracles that all demonstrate his power in various ways. First, we see the account of Jesus calming a storm. So he goes out into a boat with his disciples, and he falls asleep, and then the storm comes, and the wind and the waves, and the disciples are fearful for their lives, that they're going to be capsized and drowned, and they wake Jesus up, and Jesus stands up and tells the storm to cease, and it obeys. And then the next account we see is Jesus freeing two men from demonic oppression, so Jesus and his disciples are out in the wilderness and they are at the countryside and they encounter these two men who have been a lot of trouble in their community. Nobody's been able to control them. Jesus encounters them and commands the demons to come out of the men. And the demons ask if they can go into a herd of pigs. Jesus says yes, and they go into the pigs and run off into the sea and drown. And then finally we see Jesus uh, healing a paralyzed man. So his friends bring this man to Jesus and Jesus heals him, um, but more importantly, Jesus also forgives the man of his sins. And we see this little interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders where they object to him being able to uh, forgive the man's sins. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But as I mentioned earlier, the nature of who Jesus is, is revealed through these demonstrations of power. Jesus is actively being revealed as the Son of God through performing these miracles, Furthermore, his position, his status, and his authority are being revealed in multiple ways through these accounts. Jesus displays his power and authority over three different forces in this passage. First, he displays his power over nature, over the physical universe. Second, he displays his power over other spiritual forces, 
And third, he displays his power over sin itself. So first, let's talk about how his power over nature or the physical universe is on display in this passage. We clearly see through his healings of incurable diseases and other disabilities, and we also see this through uh, his control over the weather itself. I mean, how many of us can walk outside and tell the wind or the rain to stop and it listens to us, right? If I could do that, I'd probably bump up the temperature about 25 or 30 degrees this morning, but we're not capable of doing that. When Jesus controls the weather, he's identifying himself with God the Father. When Jesus controls the weather, he's identifying himself as Yahweh. Think about it for a minute. Who, who else controls the weather? In the Old Testament, God has power over nature. God has power over the weather. God often displayed his power over nature through various miraculous acts in the Old Testament. There's many of these. Uh, the parting of the Red Sea, when the uh, Egyptian army was pressing down on the Israelites and they were going to be slaughtered, and God causes the sea to part and the walls of water to stand up and the Israelites are able to move across. We see a similar account when God parts the Jordan River so the Israelites can cross into the Promised Land. Uh, we see an account where God causes the sun to stand still in the sky to aid the Israelites in battle. If we go back to the Egyptian plagues, I think it's Plague 7, right, is the... Um, thunderstorm of hell and fire, and plague nine, darkness comes over the land of Egypt. So time and time again in the Old Testament, God displays his supremacy by controlling nature, by controlling the weather. And it was very clear when something of this nature happened, it was because something divine was at play. These kind of things don't happen normally. And I think uh, the, the, old, the ancient people recognized it, right, when something like this happened, that something divine was at play. I think modern people tend to have a very kind of silly and anachronistic view of ancient people, thinking that they were all kind of stupid and would believe anything and everything. Well, guess what? Ancient people weren't stupid, right? They know a lot of the things that we know. They know that water always seeks out the lowest point. They knew that water always flows downhill. Maybe Isaac Henry Hatton or Isaac... Isaac Henry is a member of our church. Isaac Newton, yes. Maybe Isaac Newton hadn't postulated his theory of gravity yet, but ancient people still understood how water worked. And when they see the Red Sea stand up in part, when they see the Jordan River stand up in part, they know something strange is going on because they intuitively understood how water works. They understood that something divine was happening when things like that happen. And so when Jesus stands up and issues a command to the winds and the rain and it ceases, and they obey the voice of Jesus. The disciples understood something unusual was going on. They understood something divine was at work. So again, Jesus' power and authority are revealed through his power over nature and control over the weather and the physical universe. But that's not all. Secondly, his power and authority over spiritual forces is displayed in this passage. We clearly see this through the account of Jesus freeing these two men from demonic oppression uh, this is an account that shows up in all three of the synoptic gospels. It shows up here in Matthew chapter 8, also shows up in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8. And it, each of the accounts is, reads a little bit differently as the authors focus on different details, but there are a few common strands that show up in every single account of this story. The first common strand is that in every single account, the demons recognize him as the Son of God, and the demons call him the Son of God. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. The second common thread we see in all these accounts is that the demon completely recognized that Jesus has complete authority over him. They don't try and argue, and they don't try and resist, because they can't. 
The third common theme we see is that the demons ask him for permission to inhabit a herd of pigs. Uh, and by asking permission, they're again demonstrating a clear understanding of what the authority structure is. They know that Jesus is in charge and they're not in charge. They know where the authority lies. And so when you read these passages, uh, the, the, the same account in all three Gospels, it's impossible to come away with any other conclusion than Jesus has complete and utter power and authority over all other spiritual forces. And then the last thing that we see in this passage is that his power over sin is on display. In the account of Jesus healing the paralyzed man, the main focus and the point of that account is not actually that he healed the paralyzed man. Oh, as amazing as that is, he, he made a paralyzed man get up and walk. That's not the main point. The main point is that Jesus had the authority to and did indeed forgive that man's sins. And so what do we know from the Bible about who can forgive sins? And in this context, when I say forgiving sins, I'm not referring to the kind of forgiveness that I hope you and I do on a regular basis where we don't hold something against somebody when they wrong us. Uh, that's a good thing. But I'm talking about forgiving sins in terms of the ability to declare somebody positionally righteous before God, uh, even though that person has sinned against God. So who has the ability to forgive sins in that way, to declare somebody faultless before a holy God? Well, none of us in this room have, have that authority and that ability. We know from the Bible that only God can forgive sins in this way. And yet Jesus takes that power, he takes that privilege, he takes that authority for himself as his own. And so what is Jesus saying when he forgives this man's sins? Jesus is saying, I can forgive your sins because I'm the one that's been sinned against. I'm God. That's what Jesus is claiming when he does this. And that, that obviously was a very, very challenging claim for the scribes and the Pharisees in this passage. It's also something that's difficult to tangibly prove. Uh, people can see when a demon-possessed man is freed from oppression. People can see when the wind and the waves and the storm immediately obey the words of Jesus. People can see when a long, paralyzed man gets up and walks. It's, uh, you can't really see somebody's sins being forgiven, right? But in this case, the miraculous physical healing of the paralytic man was tangible evidence that Jesus did indeed have the ability to forgive sins. Jesus performs these miracles as evidence that his claims are legitimate. I was uh, once having a discussion with a retired Catholic priest. Uh, he was a college professor of mine, actually one of my biggest academic mentors. And uh, one, one day we were out to lunch, and we started talking about our, the differences in our faith. And I remember he made a, a strange claim to me. He said, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. I was like, well, that's not true. Um, and so I, I could never understand why he claimed that, because that's not even consistent with Catholic doctrine. But, you know, he was never able to convince me, and unfortunately I was never able to convince him either. Uh, but the reality is that Jesus did claim to be God. Uh, Sometimes Jesus was reserved uh, about when he chose to reveal his true nature, right? He progressively revealed more and more about himself uh, during his ministry. But when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus is making a very clear claim there. Jesus is taking God's covenant name, Yahweh, and taking it as his own. And the, the, the Pharisees realized that. That's why they tried to stone him and kill him after he did that. And so when Jesus performs miraculous acts, when Jesus takes it upon himself to forgive the sins of others, Jesus is claiming to be God. That became progressively clearer throughout his earthly ministry that that, that was indeed the claim of this man. 
So we've seen that the nature of who Jesus is is demonstrated through these miracles that he performs, but we also see that the nature of who Jesus is is demonstrated through the titles that are used for him in this passage. So in this particular passage, there are two titles that are used to refer to Jesus. One is the Son of God, which we already talked about. The demons referred, addressed uh, him that way when they were having that conversation. And the other is the Son of Man, which Jesus refers to himself twice in this passage that way. And I'm going to spend a little more time talking about that second one, Son of Man, and it's not because I don't think the title Son of God is important, but frankly, we're limited for time this morning, and I'm willing to bet that most of us in this room intuitively understand what's being captured when Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. Uh, There's a lot there that we don't have time to break down, but when Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, I think the most important takeaway of many is that there's a clear claim to deity going on. And I think probably all of us in that room understand that. Hopefully we all agree with that. Uh, But let's discuss this other term, Son of Man, a little bit more. The term Son of Man is actually Jesus' preferred self-designation in the Bible. It's how he refers to himself most often. Uh, The term Son of Man is used 81 times during the Gospels. Uh, 69 of those times occur during the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, And every instance except for two, the use of the term son of man is Jesus himself referring to himself as the son of man. And in the other two instances, uh, once by angels after he rises from the dead, and then once by a crowd more generically, uh, they're just quoting Jesus. So functionally the same thing. Um, So... The sheer amount of the repetition of this term and the fact that it's Jesus himself using this term about himself should communicate to us how important this term Son of Man is. So what does Son of Man mean? Again, we're we're limited for time, so I'm only going to hit some highlights here. I think we could probably spend an entire semester of an adult Sunday school class really breaking down the usage of the Son of Man in the Bible. Uh, But for this morning, there's a couple of things that I would like for you to take away. When Jesus uses Son of Man, I think obviously there's an element of his humanity in view in this usage, Uh, but it's a lot more than that. Jesus is saying that he is the most important man. Uh, Let's go all the way back to Genesis 3 after the fall. What is promised to Adam and Eve in that passage? God promises that there will be a seed from the line of Eve that will conquer sin and redeem all of creation. There's going to be a man that's going to come from the line of Eve that's going to do that. And then we can fast forward all the way in the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 7, where verses 13 and 14 have this to say about the Son of Man. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we see the Son of Man being described as an eschatological king. That means a king to come, and a king that is going to be greater than all the other kings of man that preceded this king. And this passage says this is going to be a king that's going to have a kingdom that will never end. And if we know our history well, one thing we know about kingdoms is they always end, right? All kingdoms come to an end. But the Bible says there's going to be one king and one kingdom where that king, kingdom will not come to an end. So there must be something very, very special about that king if he's going to rule over an everlasting kingdom. And so when we see the term son of man being used by Jesus, there is a claim here. There's a claim that he is the Davidic Messiah. 
the promised king and the promised redeemer, the perfect man and the perfect representative to stand in for God's people. He's the man that could stand in on our behalf and save us, whereas the first man, Adam, failed on our behalf and damned us. There's a whole lot of other stuff going on with this term, son of man, and I I wish we had more time to talk about it. I do think there's connotations of the weakness and frailty of humanity uh, that are included here that the Messiah willingly takes on, so that the Messiah is not just a conquering king, but he's also the suffering servant described in the book of Isaiah. And I think Jesus' use of the term son of man, again, is a way that he would sometimes reveal to some people while concealing to others, like he so often did in his ministry. But again, the main takeaway I would want you guys to have from this passage is that the titles used in this passage to describe Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man, communicate everything we need to know about his nature as God, his position, his power, his status, his authority. So if all these claims and demonstrations are true of Jesus, it begs the question for us today, how should we respond to these claims? Let's remember that the Bible is never merely for head knowledge. It does none of us any good if all we take away from today's sermon is a little bit more knowledge about what the term son of man means and a nifty connection back to the book of Daniel, right? If that's all you take away from today's sermon, I've not done my job. The purpose here is that we take these truths and we become more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that we glorify him in our character and our actions. So how should we respond? I think this passage would call us to respond to these truths and these claims in three different ways. First, we should respond in worship. So in the Gospels, there's actually two different accounts of Jesus calming a storm. They appear throughout all the Gospels, but I'm just going to focus on the occurrences here in Matthew since that's the book we're preaching through. Uh, There is the first account that's described here in Matthew chapter 8 that we talked about um, where Jesus calms the storm. But then a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 14, there's another account of Jesus calming a storm. Most of you will probably be familiar with this passage as well. It's the account where the disciples go out on a boat without Jesus, and then the storm happens, and they're scared that they're going to die and drown, and then Jesus walks on the water out to meet them, and then Peter hops out. He has his moment of doubt, uh, and, then, and then Jesus calms the storm. And so I think it's interesting to see the progression of the reaction of the disciples between these two accounts. In Matthew chapter 8, after Jesus uh, stops the storm, our passage today, the disciples are described as marveling or perhaps as being amazed in your translation. And the way that this word is used, and it's used quite often throughout the rest of the New Testament, there doesn't really seem to be a sense of worship attached to it. It's the same word that's used uh, to describe Pilate's uh, reaction to Jesus. When Pilate's interrogating Jesus, Pilate marvels or wonders at Jesus. So he's clearly amazed. He knows something special and unique about this man, but clearly Pilate wasn't worshiping him. Um, So I think what's going on here in Matthew chapter 8, they're amazed at this development. They know something is going on. I think they know something divine's at play, but they're still trying to work through exactly what to do with this information and how to react to the situation. But after the second time Jesus calms the uh, storm in Matthew chapter 14, the disciples are clearly described as worshiping him. They say, truly this man is the son of God, and they worship him. And so I think that should be our response to this as well. We should worship him for who he is and for what he's done. Our second reaction is that we should respond in faith. Just like we see in the story of the paralyzed man, 
Um, so the details aren't as specific here in Matthew's account, but if you look at the other accounts and the other Gospels, this is the exact same story uh, where the, the men's friends brought him to see Jesus. Jesus is ministering in a house. There's a, apparently massive crowds. They cannot get to him. So what do they do? They go up on the roof, they tear a hole in it, and they drop him down. And that's how they're able to get close enough Jesus to, to Jesus to have this encounter. And so uh, this account clearly describes Jesus as recognizing the faith that these men had and bringing their friend to him. The faith of these men is demonstrated in their dogged refusal to refuse to let anything be a barrier between them and getting to Jesus. They just weren't going to let it happen. And so this passage would call us, I believe, to pursue Jesus with that same kind of passionate faith, that trust and understanding that Jesus is the only solution for our biggest problems and refusal to let anything get in our way of pursuing and following Jesus. And then I think the last way that this passage would call us to respond to these claims is in repentance and submission. I think it's implicit in this story that not only did the paralyzed man and his friends demonstrate faith, but I think there's also some repentance at work here. Jesus recognizes both that demonstrated faith and the spirit of repentance, and he forgives the man of his sins, as we've talked about. The path to repentance is a hard one. Uh, It is not something you just walk an aisle one time and, and say you're sorry and then you're good. We're still fallen, sinful beings, and repentance is something we have to do again and again and again and again and again. But it is something that we're called to do, and I believe this passage would call us to respond in that way. And when we do respond to Jesus in all the ways that we've discussed, through worship, through faith, through repentance, we are following him. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, that's the call of this passage, That's what we're being invited to do, to follow Jesus, this man and this God who's so worth following. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our sermon talking about the cost of following Jesus. And I think these few verses here at the beginning of the passage are kind of a key pivot point for this entire section of Matthew. So let me quickly reread verses 18 through 22, just a level set. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So here in this text, we have Jesus communicating some very hard truths to his followers and to his potential followers. Uh, And that message is that following Jesus is not easy. There is a cost to doing this. There's a cost to following Jesus. So in the first little snippet here, we see a a scribe approach Jesus. And let's remember who scribes are. Scribes are the people that were responsible for uh, guarding and protecting and copying the law. Uh, They were also responsible for teaching and interpreting the law. So this is a man who is a leader in the religious community Uh, And he's someone that you would expect to be intimately familiar with the claims of scriptures, uh, of scriptures, uh, the Old Testament. So this scribe apparently recognized that there's something unique about Jesus, that he is indeed a man worth following. And so he says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus doesn't respond like you might expect. Jesus basically says, even wild animals have a home, but the Son of Man doesn't have a home. That's kind of weird. Even wild animals have a home, but I don't have a place to lay down my head. 
So what's Jesus doing? Well, I think what he's doing is he's highlighting the voluntary surrendering of privilege, humility, and the weakness that he took upon himself willingly in becoming the Son of Man. Remember, this is the Son of God, eternally existent, eternity past, and infinite splendor and infinite glory. Our feeble minds can't even begin to comprehend the majesty and the splendor and the glory of God's existence. So for the Son of God to willingly take on this human nature and all the weakness and frailty that comes along with it, we can't really even begin to comprehend the extent of that. But what Jesus is saying is that if he took on these challenges, how much more should we as his followers also expect to experience challenges and costs a couple of chapters ahead in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus has this to say about how we should be expected to, treat, to be treated as Jesus was treated. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus talks like this in other locations as well. In uh, John 14 through 16, when he's promising that the Holy Spirit will come, we see this theme explored in the epistles as well. There is a cost following Jesus, and his followers should be expected to be treated by the world the way he was treated. And so is Jesus literally saying here that if we're going to follow him, that you literally cannot have a place to lay your head down? So everybody after church... Go home, eat lunch, go to your bedroom, pull the mattress out of your room, drag it out onto the lawn, and start a bonfire, right? Or, or better yet, maybe just sell your house, leave your apartment, and go live on the street. Well, I, that's not what we're being called to do here. I think what we're being called to do is to recognize that the world opposed Jesus. They killed him for it. And if we're going to fall, follow Jesus, there's going to be a cost to that because the world will oppose us as well, and we have to be willing to pay that cost. The Lord is probably not going to call you to start a mattress bonfire in your yard this afternoon. I'm willing to bet that's not what he's calling you to do. But the Lord very well might call you to pick up your life, your family, your possessions, everything, and call you to go off to Niger or go off to Jordan or go off to Germany for a while to serve him. The Lord may call you to turn down a great job offer in a different state because he has you serving where he wants you right now. The Lord might call you to sell some luxuries that you don't need and give to those more in need. I'm not going to presume to tell anybody in this room what God's calling you to do because I don't know specifically what he's calling you to do. But the point is God does call people to do these sorts of things. God does call people to make these sorts of weighty sacrifices. God has called people in this congregation to do these kinds of things, and they have listened and they have obeyed. And we all have to be willing to make these kinds of sacrifices. And if we aren't willing then we have to ask ourselves some really difficult questions about whether we are really in this to follow Jesus. Or maybe if we're in this because, frankly, in the American South, being involved in church is still a pretty convenient social club. We have to be real with ourselves about what our willingness is to make sacrifices and follow Jesus. The, ne the next snippet we see here is another hard one. We've got a man that approaches Jesus and says, I want to follow you, but let me go and bury my father first. Jesus responds, follow me and let the dead bury their own. So what's Jesus saying here? I confess I don't know 100% um, because there's various views on these verses, and I think uh, they all have, or several of them have some merit. But the reality is the scripture doesn't give us a lot of the background details about this man and his specific request that we would probably like to know. 
But when Scripture doesn't give us all those background details, it also probably means we don't need to know them. We don't need to know whether the father was actually dead and he just needed to go to a funeral or maybe perhaps the man was making a request to go spend out several years caring for his aging father before finally returning to Jesus. I suspect the latter was true, but we don't know for sure. Um, So in trying to solve what this means for us, let's start with what we do know and work from there. We know that in ancient Near East culture, and particularly in Israelite culture, taking care of one's elderly relatives when they could no longer take care of themselves was a responsibility of great moral importance. It would have been a very shameful thing to abandon the parents who raised you. We also know that this is more than just a cultural preference because there's plenty of references in the Torah, the books of wisdom, particularly Proverbs, about honoring and caring for your uh, parents. So we know this is important to God too. So what else do we know from the Bible? Well, we know that Jesus is compassionate and Jesus doesn't trample on those in grief. Jesus validates grief and he validates sorrow as legitimate emotions. Jesus cried when he knew Lazarus died, even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And consistently throughout his ministry, Jesus is moved with compassion to care for and minister to those in brokenness, to those in grief. So hear me very clearly on this. This is a hard passage, but the correct reading and interpretation of this passage should not take someone in the throes of grief and trample them while they're down. I don't think that's what's going on here. We know from other passages that when Jesus detects insincerity or a a lack of commitment in the people he's dealing with, he often uses very strong language, sometimes even hyperbole, to force a point and to make that person realize that they aren't actually willing to follow Jesus as much as they think they are or as much as they say they are. I think the best example of this, perhaps, is when Jesus tells the rich young ruler that he's got to sell all his possessions if he wants to follow Jesus, and he's unwilling and, and, and goes away. The Bible is not making a universal claim that anybody who wants to follow Jesus literally has to sell everything they own and can't own a single thing. That's, you know, we all have clothes today, thank God, right? Like, you have to own certain things. Um, what's going on here is that I think the rich young rich young ruler was so materialistic that he would have never been willing to choose Jesus over his possessions. And Jesus recognized that, so he communicated that very strong message to him in a way of revealing his conflicted heart. And I really suspect that's what's going on here in this passage as well. While caring for one's family is good and right, it's a very moral thing, and the Bible is very clear that we have to put Jesus above everything else. And I don't think this man was willing to put Jesus above his family. Perhaps he was willing to put Jesus in second place, but second place isn't good enough for Jesus. So there are really serious costs to following Jesus. And again, I know I keep saying this, I think this part of the passage is a hard word for us. Uh, In a church like Redeemer, where we've got a lot of really theologically literate people, you probably can't find a single person who wouldn't say, I reject that the gospel message is a message of comfort. But if we're going to be honest with ourselves, and faithfully engaging with the scriptures does require that we be honest with ourselves, I think there's a lot of us that subconsciously or maybe even consciously want to accept this idea that following Jesus should be a generally comfortable experience. Uh, We want to accept the idea that following Jesus should always feel good and beneficial and not like an inconvenience. Following Jesus shouldn't cost us anything, if at all. After all, that's what our country That's what our culture, that's what our modern context promises us, right? For those who are successful, a life of ease and comfort. Uh, And shouldn't our religion offer us that same life of ease and comfort if that's what our culture and our country offers us? 
I think if we're being honest, we can find ourselves in a position of thinking this way and trying to actively seek out this comfort more than the cost of following Jesus. The obvious problem here is that's not biblical. So I think in closing today, one last question I would like for you to ask yourself this week. It's the question I've been asking myself over the past few days. Is there something in my life that I'm not willing to give up for the sake of pursuing Jesus? Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a hobby or an interest. Maybe it's not something as specific as that, but it's just more general, a life of comfort and unwillingness to be inconvenienced for the sake of the kingdom. But I would pray that all of us would ask our question, that ourselves that question this week and that if we identify anything in our lives that we would be unwilling to give up, that we would pray that God would change our hearts.